welcome back to Weird Comics History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And you can hear us every other Sunday on the Weird Science DC Comics.com podcast feed, showing up just a few hours before the regular weekly podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, Stitcher, and Classic Maritime Semaphore. Mm-hmm. Uh, this episode, we have something pretty special, pretty important uh, to the history of comics. Um, kind of a kind of a huge topic to tachel, tackle, but we're going to do the best that we can. And in fact, yes. uh, we're going to talk about two gentlemen, uh, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. And really, either one of these guys probably could get an episode. However, I, I am of the opinion you could probably do a Jack Kirby episode. You really couldn't do a Joe Simon episode without. And, and if you either one you're going to do, you're going to be crossing over heavily. Yeah, they're intrinsically linked. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, for a long time, especially in the early parts of their career, uh, you know, and and in the minds and hearts of many comics fans. So we're going to do our best to, to, you know, give both of these gentlemen their due, uh, give you guys a complete history with some something entertaining content, uh, Mm -hmm. we hope. But we're going to start with uh, Mr. Simon himself. We are. It's uh, Joe Simon, uh, born Joseph Henry uh, Joe Simon. Oh, actually, he was born Jaime Simon mm-hmm. on uh, October 11th, 1913 in Rochester, New York. Uh, we spoke about him briefly when we covered Prez on yes. the uh, Cosmic Treadmill, That's but right. we'll go quite a bit deeper here. Um, he is the son of Rose Curland of uh, Rochester and Harry Simon of Leeds, England. Uh, he had a sister named Beatrice who was born the year before him. Uh, they lived on the first floor in a commercial space that doubled as his father's tailor shop. In uh, grade school, Joe would do drawings of uh, cowboys and guns, and uh, he sold them to uh, for for a nickel. Yeah. For a nickel? Yeah, I, that was a misspelling, sorry. <laughs> he sold them for a nickel. That's, right. that's not bad money back then. No, not at all. Uh, he uh, would sell them primarily to a boy named Lasky, who uh, who would be his patron. <laughs> uh, he uh, graduated Benjamin Franklin High School in 1932. Um, he was the art director of his high school newspaper and the yearbook. Uh, two universities would pay $10 a piece for two of his Art Deco splash pages for the yearbook. Which is incredible. You know what I mean? Isn't like, it? So, so the yeah. question, they saw this yearbook and decided this this teenager was good enough to make. And again, 10 bucks. Now That's we are now we really are talking about really good money in the in the uh, you know pre 30s. Sure, I think a kid would be pleased to get 10 bucks for a drawing today. I would. I get uh, plus 100 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Really. Now, uh, right out of high school, uh, Disney uh, would hold tryouts in Rochester for their animation division. Uh, Simon saw his high school art teacher there, and they accepted Simon to do in-betweens for $15 a week. And they heavily promoted the Burbank lifestyle, but uh, Simon declined. What to say in that uh, beautiful, sunny Rochester, New York, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> it's uh, that, that, that easy, breezy Rochester. Yeah. Um, he would instead work for a few uh, Rochester and Syracuse uh, local uh, newspapers. Uh, he would be hired by art director Adolf Edler of the Rochester Journal American to work as his assistant. Uh, he replaced a fellow by the name of Al Lederman, or Leiderman, who would eventually work for uh, Fawcett, the, yeah, and uh, the other could, Captain Marvel. People. He comes back into uh, Simon's life here and there, so I had to mention him here. Yeah, he. this is his first appearance. Yes. Bag and board it. Um, <laughs> now, he he, uh, he mostly did a photo de- retouching, uh, but at a small-town paper, the art director ultimately does l- a little of everything, wears yeah. a lot of hats at the uh, at the paper. Mm. Uh, now, Joe would doodle little cartoons in the office. Uh, Adolph would run some of them in the paper. Uh, after about a year, he was uh, doing sports-related editorial cartoons for the paper regularly, uh, which, you know, he, would, he wasn't doing any more of the photo retouching. He was moving more into a primarily art uh, position. Yep. yep. 
Uh, and he drew ears, ears, which were uh, cartoon embellishments in the upper left corner of every uh, section opener. One for the art section, one for the sports section, and, you know, one for the business section all the way down. Yep. Uh, he would take a job at the Syracuse Herald in 1934 for—he he got a raise for $45 a week. And he would uh, do the same thing there, sports and editorial cartoons as well. Um, then he worked—he went from the Syracuse Herald to the Syracuse Journal. This is probably—probably probably about a year or so later, probably 1935-ish. Yeah. Around then. Uh, and he would take over the art director job from— Al Lederman. That's right. Wherever <laughs> he goes, it seemed like Simon followed early on. Yes, he was. He was always there to pick up the uh, pick up the baton. Uh, now this newspaper would fold around 1936, prompting his journey to uh, into the greater New York City. Yeah, I, I wanted to say a little bit about newspapers right around this time. I mean, now we are talking about the you know crux of the Great Depression, uh, and this newspaper, as well as the Rochester Journal American, they were owned by the Hearst Syndicate. And 1935, William Randolph Hearst withdrew his previously robust support for Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his New Deal, which uh, he became an ardent critic of them. New Deal was pretty popular. This eventually would kind of screw Hearst down the line. Uh, Hearst also backed the 1936 Republican candidate Alf Landon. You remember this guy? You hear a lot he about came this from guy? Melmac, right? That's right, exactly. Yeah, you like to <laughs> he eat got, cats? He got all four electoral votes from Melmac. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> and, and Hearst pretty much fell out of public favor at this point. And then, you know, combined, he, he was a real big spendocrat. He liked fine art. He liked to have yachts. He liked to throw lavish parties. Uh, his He was financially ruined, and he had to sell off a lot of his holdings and properties, including... Uh, these newspapers and basically just shut them down. I think it's also important to say too that in the time that Joe Simon grew up there, Rochester was a bustling American city. It was tremendous. Eastman Kodak sure. uh, was located there, and you know that alone pretty much kept the town humming. So it was a cut. You know, nowadays it really is kind of a one of the one suburb. Of the, yeah, that's well, it's there's definitely a suburban, but the city itself is sort of one of those you know depressed American cities that you read so much about in the in the, in the newspaper. But at this time, it was it was happening, so it was uh, it was a brave but not a you know and not really a normal decision to move from Rochester to New York. Things were pretty good in Rochester, but anyway, uh, Joe Simon did come to New York at the age of 23, and he moved to the Morningside Heights area of New York near Columbia University into a boarding house called Haddon Hall. At the suggestion of the, of the New York Journal American's art director, he found work at Paramount Pictures retouching celebrity photos, did an illustration work for McFadden Publications, drawing pictures for True Story and other magazines. Now, this is the company that would eventually do Tiger Beat and Write On magazines, as well as the Ladies Home Journal and Us magazines. Uh, at this time, True Story and Photoplay were their biggest sellers. So, obviously, the, the skills that he'd learned prior to submitting, you know, original artwork at, at the... Uh, Rochester newspapers that are serving him well just to keep, uh, you know, food on the table. And mm. it looks like he's making a pretty good living at it already. Uh, this is something you see throughout his life, that Joe Simon seems to be a pretty crafty fella, and he's able to drum up a couple of dollars for himself when he needs it. Um, Har Harlan Crandall, art director at McFadden, recommended Joe to Lloyd Jacquet of Funnies Incorporated, a comics packager. Uh, this was the publishing style of the golden era comics where you'd have different, you know, studios that would employ several artists and they would sort of just crank out endless comics, create characters, just, you know, anything to put ink on the paper was really the order of the day. Uh, his first sale through Funnies Incorporated would be to Martin Goodman of Timely Comics, believe it or not, which would hmm. later become Marvel, as we know. 
uh, and he was created Marvel Comics number one, October 1939. Uh, this is the, fir- the first full-length debuts of the Human Torch and the Submariner, but uh, as well as what has recently been considered the first Marvel comic book, but uh, he didn't actually work on that one. That was only from Funnies Incorporated. So Simon's first job from Funnies Incorporated was a seven-page Western story, so I kind of fooled you there. Uh, four, four days later, he did. He created the Human Tor- Torch ripoff, The Fiery Mask, at the request of Martin Goodman. Uh, I'm sure there's a story behind why Tiley wanted to rip <laughs> off its own character. I assume uh, they were like, wow, Human Torch is popular. Let's do that again. I, I'm not really sure. Uh, but he's actually a lot different than the Human Torch. It's scientist Jack Castles captured by a 20-foot-tall villain named Zombie Master. His zombie-making machine doesn't work on Jack, so he turns up the juice and it explodes giving him superpowers and turning him into the Fiery Mask. Uh, fiery Mask looks human, wears a yellow shirt, red gloves, pants and domino mask, and a green cape and boots, and carries a sidearm. His powers are basically Golden Age Superman plus pyrokinesis. So, you know, similar but different, not an android, I guess. That's a yeah. little, little something there. Um, also, use the pseudonym Gregory Sykes on at least one story, King of the Jungle. In Daring Mystery Comics number two uh, that came out in 1940 by Timely Comics. Now we're going to tag in the uh, tag team partner here. We're going to talk about Jack Kirby a little bit. Uh, Jacob Kurtzberg is his birth name. Uh, he was born August 28, 1917, in the Lower East Side, New York City. Uh, we actually have an address 147 yeah. Essex Street. It's funny, um, going through Kirby, I, I, there were, I didn't put them all in here, but there were a lot of addresses. Like, you can go on a Kirby tour of New York if you, you wanted folks yeah. just hop in the car and see everything, everything he did. I don't know if it's due to, he just has so many devotees out there. I, I don't know if just the research is that just that much uh, denser. I think it's possible. I think for some people, visiting some of these locations is like a mecca, so they uh, it's make It's Graceland, sure to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, he's an Austrian-Jewish, he has Austrian-Jewish immigrant parents, uh, Benjamin and Rose, uh, Rose's maiden name, Bernstein, or Bernstein. Uh, he did not excel in school. He instead preferred doodling and playing hooky at the movies uh, and, you know, brawling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a kind of a short, pugnacious fella, um, probably a real mean son of a gun when he wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, looking at pictures of him now, it's like that's a dude I wouldn't want to cross. He, he, look, he looks like a guy that could really, you know, lump your meat, let me tell you. And, yeah. and you know, some of, the, some of his contentious attitude would really play out throughout his life, as you will see. Certainly, certainly. Uh, now he would be in. He was inspired by Alex Raymond's Flash Gordon comic strip, uh, like so many illustrators of his generation. He was also inspired by Milton Caniff of uh, Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon fame, uh, Hal Forster of Tarzan, and uh, editorial cartoonists of the era. Um, now he claims to have been uh, rejected by the Educational Alliance for drawing too fast with charcoal. <laughs> That's odd. (laughs) Now, the uh, Educational Alliance is a social institution originally at 197 East Broadway, organized in 1889 to educate uh, primarily Jewish immigrants. Uh, They were first to Americanize them and later to uh, expand into a broader education. Now, uh, Kirby almost certainly meant the Alliance Art School specifically, sort of its own uh, annex, though in the same building. So, uh, you know. Yeah, what's the big deal? Why, yeah, why argue the point? It's all the same um, Yes, uh, he honed his drawing skills, uh, drawing cartoons for the newspaper of the uh, Boys in the Brotherhood Republic, uh, a miniature city on 3rd Street where street kids ran the show. This is incredible. What? Yeah, 
it is sort of like some uh, Lord of the Flies scenario. It, it really is. Like, I, you can't believe this took place in the 20th century in New York City. Like, wow. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, it turns out it was more like a, a boys club, uh, mm. kind of like 4-H or the Boy Scouts. Um, difference here was that the kids did organize their own government with lawyers, judges, police officers, and elected representatives. But it was supervised by an adult. Uh, in Kirby's time, that would be a fellow from Chicago by the name of Harry Slonaker, or Slonaker. And either one. Either one, maybe both. Um, he attended the uh, Pratt Institute in Brooklyn for a week and dropped down. He said, I wasn't the kind of student Pratt was looking for. They wanted people who would work on something forever. I didn't want to work on any project forever. I intended to get things done. And he would, folks. We'll see. I think yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, there were uh, there were financial needs at home that required him to start making some money. Um, he was briefly an in-betweener at Fleischer Studios, but uh, labor strikes found him looking for new work. Uh, still, he may have been working there while Joe Simon was working for their parent company, Paramount, uh, you know, for what that's worth. Which is, you know, be an interesting, uh, you know, turn of the uh, yeah. turn of fate. Maybe, maybe they saw the same memo. I don't know. You know, I don't think yeah. they worked anywhere near each other. But yeah, they they were in this, they were getting getting paychecks from the same place for a short sure. time. Uh, now he began drawing strips for the Lincoln Newspaper Syndicate in 1936, uh, as a lot of editorial cartoons, uh, one-panel fact strips. And uh, humor cartoons uh, over three and a half years. We got some of them to list for you right here. We got one of my favorites here. Your health comes first! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Uh, this was done under her pseudonym, uh, Jack Curtis, with two S's. Yeah. Uh, one called Black Buccaneer, which is about a pirate ship. Uh, Abdul Jones, which is a humor strip. Cyclone Burke, which is a sci-fi strip. Uh, Sako the Sea Dog, which is pretty much Popeye. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which uh, it was created by a co-worker. Um, this is Kirby's most popular strip at Lincoln. Of course. Well, well you know, yeah. it just goes to show ripping ripping off something famous will always get you further than doing anything on your own. <laughs> Absolutely. But what, what, what already right here, what we're seeing is he's working in a wide variety of genres and and I, I just want to I just want to cut it you know this this is something Chris and I have talked about before this generation of uh, comic book artists were workers they were there to draw mm -hmm. comics and it wasn't about drawing their precious story or whatever but staying employed you know and and yeah. being able to be versatile and work in different genres and styles was all part of the craft you know now you see that much less but that's uh Editorializing for another day. Yeah, these these guys were definitely not the uh, the John Byrne rose sniffers. No, <laughs> you know? not at all. Yeah. He'd say that people stop to smell the roses, and uh, these were not those kind of folks. Nope. Um, now he worked with uh, with Eisner and Iger comic book shop at the same time. Um, his first original work was uh, for Wild Boy magazine. Also did the the Diary of Doctor Haywood under the pseudonym Kurt Davis, uh, Wilton of the West as Fred Sandy. And the Count of Monte Cristo back as uh, Jack Curtis. Uh, now, these were all printed in a comic by Fiction House. Uh, Jumbo number one, cover date September 1938. Now, he would first use the name Kirby for two Lone Rider uh, Western stories as uh, Lance Kirby in Famous Funnies number 63 and 64, which would be October, November 1939, uh, by Eastern Color Printing. Uh, he wound up settling on Jack Kirby because it reminded him of James Cagney. Uh, he bristled at suggestions. He did it to hide his Jewish heritage because a lot of folks were doing that. <laughs> yeah, that is, you know, that is true. At the same time, though, you know, I think anglicizing your name, it, 
it's it's hard to say you know what i mean it's uh yeah you had to be there i guess but i think the idea of anglicizing your name wasn't a matter of hiding your jewish heritage not like you put away the menorah and the yarmulke no but it, it was, was for recognizability exactly you know what i mean it was just going to get you know it's the same way same reason Cary grant all these people none of them were their real names and the fact that he's trying out a bunch of different names shows that he's kind of playing with what's going to sound better than jacob kurtzberger you know the or kurtzberger exactly. so you know I, I think it's fair for him to say that it's not necessarily he was ashamed of anything he was just doing something he thought was smart you know uh, career-wise Exactly. Um, now, Kirby would start working for uh, Victor Fox at Fox Feature, Feature Syndicate for $15 a week. Uh, he worked on their biggest character, who was the Blue Beetle. Uh, Fox would go out of business around 1955, and they sold the character to Charlton Comics. And, they're diff uh, I believe they're we, different. This is not the same Yeah, this isn't Blue Ted Beetle. Gould. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or Jaime Reyes. Or any, anyone uh, we know today. It's a totally different. It even looks, looks different, but. Yeah, it's got a weird, uh, like a like a hood and a mask and a, a hood and a little domino mask kind of. And wings, I think too. Right? Didn't you have like Maybe. bug wings? Yeah. yeah. Now he sat next to Bill Everett, who was the creator of Submariner. Um, he moves to Brooklyn in 1940, and he meet he meets Rosalind Goldstein, who we know her as Roz, uh, in his apartment. And uh, the we have an address for that too. It's a uh, 2820 Brighton Seventh Street, on the north side of uh, Brighton Beach. Yeah, and he he they would be married, but we will get there. Uh, I wanted yes. to I wanted to pause on that because a very important thing is going to happen before the marriage, and that's uh, Kirby meets Fox Fox features editor Joe Simon, and they hit it off immediately. Mm. Kirby says it's because they appreciated each other's clothes. Simon had a neatly kept suit. Remember, his dad is a tailor, and <laughs> Kirby's had really nice pants. His father worked at one of the sweatshops in the garment district. Uh, they really were quite a pair, you know. Joe was this is this tall, lanky, sort of bookish-looking guy. Jack is short, squat, and pugnacious. You know, it really was like a frickin' frack or a uh, Laurel and Hardy type situation. Yep. Uh, Joe Simon from 1998 said, "I had a suit, and Jack thought that it was that was really nice. He'd never seen a comic book artist with a suit before. The reason I had a suit was that my father was a tailor. Jack's father was a tailor too, but he made pants." Anyway, I was doing freelance work, and I had a little office in New York about 10 blocks from D.C.'s and Fox Fox's offices, and I was working on Blue Bolt for Funnies Incorporated. So, of course, I loved Jack's work, and the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. He asked if we could do some freelance work together. I was delighted, and I took him over to my little office. We worked from the second issue of Blue Bolt. In 2003, uh, some art from an unpublished five-page story called The Dance, The Daring Disc surfaced, which actually may predate the, this uh, Blue Bolt work that Simon's talking about, but it, it was never published anyway, so, you know, he could have forgotten it, or maybe he didn't mention it because he didn't think the world would see it, but that, that's not sure. what, you know, the first work the world saw was Blue Bolt, as uh, Simon says. So they began working freelance together through Joe's office, supplying mainly to Fox. Uh, Joe Simon broke his contract with Fox to become the first editor at Timely Publications. That was, again, the future Marvel. But he worked on their adult magazines, which included Swank, which at that time <laughs> was not, as we say, you know, it was sort of a proto-playboy. Now you go get Swank. Don't go get Swank, kids. That's a bad, <laughs> that's a bad comic. Your mom will be very upset with you. Um, now we're going to bring in a fellow that I think everyone's familiar with. In 1940, they created Captain America. And mm -hmm. Captain America number one debuts with a cover date of March 1941. This went on sale December 1920, 1940. Almost exactly two years before, uh, you know, December 7th, uh, the sure. day that will live in infamy. But, I mean, it's been pointed out before, but, I mean, it's so... 
almost to the minute. <laughs> like it's true. It's, it's like two years minus a couple of weeks. Um, so, and I even mentioned it right here. Now, the cover depicts Cap punching Adolf Hitler in the jaw. Now, this sentiment was not revolutionary. Lots of newspapers were calling for U.S. intervention in Europe, and U.S. was already aiding England and, you know, the people that would become the allies. But uh, this really tapped into a street-level sentiment of punching Hitler in the in the freaking face. You know what I mean? It was, this, was, <laughs> this was not pulling your—this was not like, oh, we got to, you know, do embargoes and, you know, yeah. uh, sanctions. No, no. Someone's got to go in there and just sock this guy. Sock him. Uh, and that's the way I think a lot of people felt. They wanted to punch Hitler in his smug, stupid face. <laughs> now, from, from his position as editor, Simon was able to negotiate 25% of the profits from this issue— for he and Kirby. This is another recurring thing you will see. Simon is a very savvy gentleman. Mm-hmm. Um, first printing sold out. Second printing sold a million copies. For a comic to sell out, even in those days, was it, they weren't expected to sell out. You know, yeah. you were expected to go through, you know, if you could push a third of the run, you would make a profit and you would be okay, and you'd pulp the rest of it. That was the way comics worked for decades. So to sell out a run was incredible it was uh not not there wasn't a ton of precedent for it i think it had been done or been close to done but this was definitely uh uh, made their eyes bug out of their skulls a little bit Uh, after his success hurt kirby is hired to timely as an art director uh, by joe simon so that was very convenient Uh, captain american was originally conceived as super american in his autobiography joe simon writes no it didn't work there were too many supers around captain america had a good sound to it there weren't a lot of captains in comics. It was as easy as that. The boy companion was simply named Bucky, after my friend Bucky Pearson, a star on a high school f- basketball team. Uh, Martin Goodman wanted to get this thing to press immediately, so Joe planned to get a team on the book. Jack would do the primary pencils, others would do finishes, and an inker would tie it all together. This upset Kirby a lot, who took it as a challenge to his sense of pride that he couldn't do it all. And again, from Simon's autobiography, uh, he says, uh, I'll make the deadline, Jack promised. I'll pencil it myself and make the deadline. I hadn't expected this kind of reaction, but I acceded to Kirby's wishes and it turned out I was lucky that I did. There might have been two Al's, referring to Al Avison and Al Gabriel, who Simon planned to put on the issue, but there was only one Jack Kirby. I wrote the first Captain America book with penciled lettering right on the drawing boards, with very rough sketches for figures and backgrounds. Kirby did his thing, building up the muscular anatomy, adding ideas and pepping up the action as only he could. Then he, t- then he tightened up the pencil drawings, adding detailed backgrounds, faces, and figures. And the issue was inked by... Dun, dun, dun. Al Lederman. <laughs> hey, he's back again. I think that might be our last uh, soiree with him, but I like how he just keeps popping up. Uh, yeah. How- Howard Ferguson eventually did the lettering. Now, though the reception to Captain America was obviously largely positive, it went through two printings, selling one out and selling a million copies of the second one, there were some Nazi sympathizers who did not appreciate this funny book. Uh, timely got death threats and hate mail, and a police detail was assigned to the building, which at this time was at the McGraw-Hill building at 330 West 42nd Street. Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia sent Joe and Jack a letter of support. Captain America's circulation stayed close to a million copies during the war, outselling magazines like Time. And Simon and Kirby stayed on until issue number 10, which was January 1942, cover date. Mm. Now... 
you know, they, they the fellas feel like they're kind of getting screwed by Timely over Captain America, so they decide to look for work elsewhere. Uh, at some point during this time, the duo produced uh, Fawcett Comics' Captain Marvel Adventures Number 1 from 1941, uh, the first complete comic book starring Captain Marvel, following the uh, character's run as the star of the superhero anthology Wiz Comics. Uh, before long, Joe and Jack find work at National Publications, which we now know better as DC. <laughs> Joe Simon tells why, uh, in an introduction to a French edition of reprint- reprinted Sandman, uh, he says, the money, they offered us twice as much. And when we got there, they didn't know what to do with us. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Kirby and Simon negotiated a deal that would pay them a combined $500 a week. Whew. Yeah, it's huge. It's, I mean, that's that's pretty big today. It really is. It's huge. It's it's. I mean, this is like you're making wealthy guy money now here. Absolutely. Now, this is opposed to the seventy-five and eighty-five that they respectively earned at Timely. So, I mean, that's a huge wage increase. They, they tripled your money right there. You know, absolutely it's unbelievable. Now, they feared publisher Martin Goodman would not pay them if he found out they were moving to National, but many people knew of their plan, including a certain timely editorial assistant by the name of Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. Not even Stan um, Lee yet. He would have been Stanley Lieber. Stanley Lieber, yeah. Uh, now, when Goodman eventually discovered it, he told Simon and Kirby to leave, their finish, leave after finishing work on Captain America Comics number 10. Uh, Kirby and Simon kept a couple of weeks uh, coming up with uh, new characters that were not adopted. Yeah, at National, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Kirby ghosted on a couple of projects to ill effect. Eventually, national editor Jack Leibowitz told them, do what you want. And they they revamped two characters. This would be Sandman and Manhunter, both appearing in the anthology uh, Adventure Comics. Uh, Now, Manhunter would be more of a hard reboot with a new identity and uh, the whole shebang. Um, In July of 1942, they began on the Boy Commandos feature in Star Spangled Comics, um, the ongoing, this is an ongoing kid gang series of the same name, uh, launched later that same year. Uh, this was the creative team's, uh, first national feature to graduate into its own title. It also sold over a million copies a month, becoming national's third best-selling title, which is crazy that that wasn't the top seller. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I well, I assume the other titles were Superman and Batman. Superman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Now, also in the 1942, they debuted the successful uh, Newsboy Legion, also in Star Spangled Comics. Uh, this would be number seven, April of 1942. Um, now, Joe Simon may have used the pseudonym Clavin on at least two covers during the time. Uh, those of Harvey Comics, Speed Comics number 22, and Champ Comics number 22. Both of those hit in September that year, or cover dated September that year. Uh, there were other instances where Simon and Kirby may have used pseudonyms, but uh, they haven't been definitively confirmed, and at this point, they probably won't be. Yeah, you can actually go online. There's, there's a uh, guy that works for Titan Books that uh, is restoring a lot of these old Golden Age comics, and he has a list of not just uh, Simon and Kirby, but other artists who either their work is unsigned or attributed to other you know, pseudonyms. It's pretty interesting stuff to... The kind of work that he does, it's worth looking up. I'll, I'll put a, a link in the in the show is notes. Is he the same? Is he the same fellow who found out about the uh, that that Siegel uh, or the uh, Knights of uh, well, Horror? Maybe originally. I mean, I you know, Craig hmm. Yo kind of picked it up, but uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. He he might be the guy that first cottoned on to that. I don't I'm I don't know. It seems like a guy that looked remember. at a lot of Golden Age work, so he's his eyes are kind of attuned to the line. Yes. I think. Um, but, you know, what we're seeing here is we're seeing something that's going to be repeating itself 
over and over, you know, Kirby and Simon, to a lesser extent, feeling, uh, you know, taken advantage of by their publishers, moving on, not having any trouble finding work, obviously, you know, finding huge success wherever they go, Simon negotiating these deals. So, you know, this is just something I want you to uh, keep in mind. It's sort of like, you know, um, kind of tells you how your own life goes in cycles, you know, as much as you think sure. you're, a, you're, you're a bag in the wind, you're pretty much just kind of running around a hamster wheel. But anyway, that's uh, for philosophy. <laughs> now, figuring Simon and Kirby would be drafted into the army, obviously, December 7th, 1942, the Japanese uh, attacked Pearl Harbor, and that brought... America into World War II and uh, smartly figuring that Jack and, you know, Jack and Joe would be drafted into the army soon enough, Jack Leibowitz at DC or National had them create a year's worth of work in as fast mm. as they could do it. They employed inkers, letterers, colorists to work around the clock and just cranked out material. Uh, Kirby also probably saw the writing of the wall as well and married Roz Goldstein, the uh, woman that he talked about earlier from uh, the Brighton Coney area, uh, on May 23rd in 1942. And uh, this was pretty fortuitous because Kirby was drafted June 7th, 1943. Kirby landed in, on Omaha Beach in Normandy on August 23rd, 1944, two and a half months after D-Day. Kirby recalled that a lieutenant learning what that comics artist Kirby was in his command, he made him a scout who would advance into towns and draw reconnaissance maps and pictures. Now, this is a pretty dangerous job, as you might imagine, yeah. to go alone into an occupied, well, it could be an occupied <laughs> area, uh, and just kind of have to, like, hide behind a tree, I guess, and sketch out, you know, whatever's around. That's um, terrifying. It, it's, that's horrifying to me, you know, but uh, it's like, it's, like even, it's, it's way scarier than marching in with the infantry. At least you got, Absolutely. you know, your guys around you, but this is what this is what he did for at least part of the war. Uh, Kirby's wife, Roz, sent him a letter every day while he was stationed in Europe. Uh, he, he, Jack also almost had his legs amputated in the winter of 1944 due to frostbite, but it, that didn't happen. Uh, finished his tour of duty stateside in 1945 <laughs> at Camp Butner in North Carolina uh, as part of the motor pool, which I guess I was guys that drove generals and, uh, you know, higher-ups, officers around. Uh, he, he was honorably discharged on July 20th, 1945, receiving a combat infantryman badge and a European-African Middle Eastern theater ribbon with a bronze battle star. So a pretty uneventful tour of duty, huh? Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure <laughs> wow. I mean, I'm sure there's 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 another whole book I'm that sure. could just be written about his two years in the war. Most of these it's guys they, they saw things that, you know, would really uh, bend your mind to have you run mm -hmm. into your nearest horror film to uh <laughs> wanna <laughs> wind down. But uh Joe Simon did not did not have to see the same kind of thing. He did something he kind of went another route. Joe Simon joined the Coast Guard not long after Jack was drafted. And, and now I couldn't see any evidence for this, Chris, anywhere, but hmm. I'm thinking it's possible. This is, this is a total postulation, you know, science fiction, you know, sure. type thought in my head. But Joe and Jack knew one of them or both of them were going to be drafted soon enough. Yeah. So I wonder if Joe, if they just kind of, you know, stayed, you know, civilians and worked as long as they could until the draft notice came in for Jack. And when that happened, it's, isn't it possible that Joe was like, well... You know, I, I'm not working with Kirby for two years. I might as well pitch in or do something myself on sure. my own terms. You know what I mean? So I, I yeah, I, I, I don't wonder know. if they had like that planned out before them. Like if one of them got uh, yeah. drafted, the other one would automatically just jump into another branch of service. That's exactly that, that's the yeah. kind of thing I'm wondering if they had worked this out because they knew that they knew that the team was something that worked for them. And, sure. you know, it, knowing and, and, and this isn't this isn't to say that, you know, Joe Simon didn't want to fight for his country. People were really gung-ho. I'm sure he wanted to do what, what he oh, had to sure. do. 
but obviously as long as they could they're gonna stay with what was working with the comics and uh, when that was gonna have a pause button put on it anyway I don't know if that's true I have no evidence for that but I just find it interesting it's like food for thought yeah, yeah he, Jack Kirby was drafted and like Joe Simon joined the Coast Guard a month later so it's pretty mm -hmm. it's pretty timely that it happened then um, Joe Simon was first assigned to the Mounted Beach Patrol at Long Island off of Barnegat New Jersey for a year uh, before being sent to boot camp near Baltimore Maryland for basic training so he actually was stationed before boot camp, they obviously needed people at uh, quick meeting yeah. the seats real fast. After boot camp, he reported for duty with the Combat Art Corps in Washington D.C., part of the Coast Guard's Public Information Division. In 1944, he stayed there in civilian housing with cartoonist and New York po po Post sports columnist Milton Gross, who I'm a pretty big fan of. You can there's actually a collection of his stuff out now. It's a uh, pioneer of wacky comics of the uh, 20s and 30s. Simon created a true life comic book about the Coast Guard that was published by National. And this was syndicated nationally in Parents Magazine, Sunday Funny section under the title True Comics. Following mm -hmm. this, Simon and Gross created a Coast Guard rec recruitment comic titled Adventures My Career, distributed by Street and Smith Publications for sale at newsstands. Upon Simon's discharge in 1945, he married Harriet Feldman, the secretary to Harvey Comics, Al Harvey. Hmm, how about that? Mm. Now, uh, with the war behind them, uh, Simon was able to get work for he and Kirby through Harvey Comics. I, I wonder, wonder how. how. Yeah, I don't know how, <laughs> what was the connection, but anyway. Now, for Harvey, the duo would create uh, titles like the Kid Gang Adventure called Boy Explorers Comics, another Kid Gang uh, Western called uh, Boy's Ranch, and the superhero comic Stuntman. And capitalizing on the 3D movie fad, they had Captain 3D. Uh, Kirby also was, did which work. Which actually was in part a th an attempt at a 3D comic that didn't work yeah. very well, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kirby also did some work for Hillman Publications on their true crime books, uh, but it was with uh, Crestwood Publications that Joe and Jack were allowed to set up their own imprint, which they called Prize Group. Uh, Jack and Joe produced a comic for Hillman periodicals called My Date. Uh, cover date March 1947, that depicted teenage life in a more uh, frank and adult way than depicted before. Uh, you know, at this point, usually teenagers in comics were they, they would they were they served to become sidekicks. Yeah, you either were you either were in a kid gang or you were a superhero sidekick. There was That's no it. that was that was your graduation. <laughs> You didn't have a love life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this was a uh, massively popular book, and Simon used this windfall to negotiate the deal with Crestwood to set up Prize Group, where uh, they would have the relative artistic freedom to earn an incredible 50% of their profits. Wow. Yeah, he's he's a savvy fella. You're not gonna see um, you're not gonna see a deal like that today, folks. It's not. You know what I mean? Like that's not. <laughs> I I when I when I looked at that, I had to like do double triple check because I was just like, this can't, that can't be. But that's the claim. Yeah, fifty percent. Fifty percent. Unbelievable. Fifty cents on every dollar that came in. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Isn't it? Uh, now, Kirby would uh, note later that this was the first time that creators received a sales percentage, which isn't actually true, but almost certainly the first time creators would get such a huge you know piece of the pie yeah i don't know um, i don't know all the, everyone's deals obviously but we know that bob kane for example got yeah some kind of percentage but i bet it was like single digits percent folks it wasn't sure. anything yeah <laughs> it was a lot of money for what it was probably but yeah. not 50 percent mm. um now simon and kirby published young romance number one this was cover dated September-October 1947, and a new comics genre was born. 
Uh, a cover banner explained that the series was designed for a more adult reader of comics. Uh, My Date, incidentally, ran for four issues. Uh, Joe and Jack worked for Hillman and Crestwood simultaneously for a short time, uh, which is a testament to just how important these fellows were. Mm-hmm. They do whatever they wanted, yeah. Yeah, it's like, hey, you you want to you wanna do anything for us? Yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> now, we're far what you'd call experts. We're far from what you would call experts on romance comics, but uh, suffice to say, romance comics were a massive phenomenon and probably set uh, Kirby and Simon up pretty darn well. Mm-hmm. Uh, young Romance, number one, sold an incredible 92% of its run. Uh, most comics sold about a third. So, I mean, this is this is a big seller. Huge, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, now, by the third issue, Crestwood increased its production run, and it sold an incredible... They broke that one million barrier. This is a romance comic book. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> now, Young Romance, it, this was a bi-monthly title, but uh, it went to monthly and spawned another title called Young Love. Is also produced by Simon and Kirby, and also produced monthly. Uh, the two of these comics sold a million comics, a million copies per month each, all the way through to the mid fifties. Wow! And they're getting fifty percent of everything on all of these sales. You got to think about that. Amazing. You know, it, yes. It, it, I, you know, it made them wealthy men. I believe right here. You know, we're looking at them. To. Absolutely, yeah. Now, also for Prize Group, they created the long-running horror title called Black Magic, which debuted in 1950. According to Jack Kirby, the idea of sp- the idea for Spider-Man originated with him and Simon. Uh, they developed a character called the Silver Spider for Black Magic, who was subs- subsequently not used. Uh, now, these successes allowed Simon and Kirby, now with his first child, to purchase homes in Mineola, Long Island, di- diagonally across the street from one another. Uh, they would work in home studios, Kirby's in the basement, and they called it the dungeon. Yeah, it was like 10 feet across. It was, it's really, yeah. and, I, and you can see pictures of it. It looks like a Long Island wood panel, you know, crummy yeah. little basement. <laughs> you know, like it does the job. And I, I got to say, you know, so these guys, they lived across the street from each other until, the, you know, their expirations. They, they, that was their only homes they ever owned. I think Kirby did like, maybe move to California for a while at the very end. But at the end, yeah. Pretty much they, you know, for decades, living across the street from each other, and while they were... Always friendly. I expected I was going to read about all these, whatever, anecdotes, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I helped Kirby clean his gutter and he broke his arm or whatever, you know what I mean? No, <laughs> none of that. They, like the, I, I think, honestly, they were working 12, 14-hour days. They weren't hanging out with each other, period. You nope. know, they were, like, probably shuffling across the street to hand pages back and forth and then back to the dungeon. You know, that was how it, that's how it worked. Now, at the urging of a Crestwood salesman, uh, Kirby and Simon launched their own comics company, Mainline Publications, in late 1953 or early 1954. They subletted space from their friend Harvey uh, at 1860 Broadway for Har- in the Harvey Comics uh, office. Published four titles, uh, Bullseye, Western Scout, which was a Western comic, Foxhole, a war comic, but it had the tagline that it was created by actual veterans, which would have... Not been true of Two-Fisted Tales by Harvey Kurtzman, the most popular uh, war comic of the time. In Love, a romance comic, and Police Trap, a true, ki- a true crime comic. Simon and Kirby were annoyed that Atlas Comics, which was Marvel in the 1950s, had relaunched Captain America in 1954, so they responded by creating Fighting American. Issue number one debuted in May 1954. Joe Simon said this was Captain America done right. The character begins as a jingoistic patriot, not unlike Captain America, but in the wake of Joe McCarthy's anti-communist, you know, red-baiting crusade and the backlash against it, 
He became a more cynical parody of super, superheroes in the second issue, which is sort of, and he was sort of a commentary on 1950s Americanism, which I thought was interesting. You know, this is just another time that we see comics are going against the mainstream grain to, co- to yep. comment on, you know, 1950s mores and, you know, the constraints. We, we looked at that with EC and their horror comics and those comics, and we see it here. Something was in the water, folks. Something was in the air. They could tell that the uh, grift was on. But then what happened in 1954, Chris? Something. I, th- I think something big happened in something, 1954, huh? Something we keep bumping up against it. Uh, the old <laughs> comics code. And yes, we did do a long five-part series on this in the very beginning of our uh, solo run. But just quickly after the Kefauver hearings and the instating of the comics code, the industry co- contracted so many hundreds of publishers vanished yeah. overnight and mainline sales slumped and then after that joe simon went into advertising mostly and in 1971 uh, kirby recalled that simon wanted to do other things and i stuck with comics it was fine there was no reason to continue the partnership and we parted friends uh, the Simon and Kirby team reunited briefly in 1959 with Simon writing and collaborating on art for uh, Archie Comics. And they updated uh, the superhero, The Shield, in the two-issue The Double Life of Private Strong. This is June-August 1959. Must have been a quarterly title. Mm-hmm. Um, Simon created the superhero The Fly. And they went on to collaborate on the first two issues of The Adventures of the Fly, which is August-September 1959. And Simon and other artists, including Al Williamson, Jack Davis, and Carl Burgos, did four issues before Simon returned to working in commercial art. A little bit. Kirby, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kirby made a temporary return to Atlas Comics. Uh, inker Frank Giacoya uh, had approached editor-in-chief Stan Lee for work and suggested he could get Kirby back to pencil some stuff. Um, while freelancing for National Comics Publications, Kirby drew 20 stories from Atlas, uh, for Atlas from 1956 to 1957. I, I love how it's just like, yeah, he just drew 20 stories. Why not bang it out in a year? <laughs> oh, all right. I know, it's amazing. I know. Uh, while he's working for another company. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, this would begin with a five-page minefield in Battleground uh, number 14, uh, cover dated November 1956. Uh, Kirby penciled and in some cases inked with his wife Roz and uh, wrote stories of the Western hero Black Rider is a uh, the, the, and also the uh, Fu Manchu like Yellow Claw and more. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> in 1957, distribution troubles caused the Atlas implosion, the much lesser heard of yeah. <laughs> implosion <laughs> that resulted in several series being dropped and no new material being assigned for many months. Um, ultimately, penning a deal with distributor owned uh, by National, but that's something we're going to cover later that's on. The, that's for the Marvel episode, yeah. But th- yes. th- this, could, this constrained the number of titles they could put out per month for a long, long time. Yeah, this is why, you know, uh, Hulk and Iron Man shared a title for yep. a while. Um, now, Kirby co created with uh, writers Dick and Dave Wood The Challengers of the Unknown. They showed up in Showcase Number no. 6, February 1957. Uh, he contributed to the House of Mystery Horror Anthology. Uh, during 30 months of freelancing for DC, Kirby drew slightly more than 600 pages, which included 11 six-page Green Arrow stories in World's Finest Comics and Adventure Comics uh, that, uh, in a rarity, uh, Kirby inked himself. 
Um, he would uh, recast Green Arrow as a science fiction space explorer, which displeased the character's creator, Mort Weisinger. But obviously there was something on the wind, folks. 1958, I think something else might have happened right around that year. Could have been a uh, satellite from Russia called Sputnik. Mm -hmm. circumvented. Sputnik. Yeah, circumnavigated or circum, you know, spun around the globe, went into orbit, and uh, that pretty much kicked off the space race and a huge interest in space comics. And uh, that's why Kirby began drawing a newspaper comic strip, Sky Masters of the Space Force, debuting September 8th, 1958, written by the Wood Brothers and initially inked by Wally Wood, who's not related to them. He's just Wally <laughs> Wood. Now, this is a really complicated story. When I, when I dug into it, I, I found it really fascinating. Uh, in 1958, Harry L. Mark, an agent from the George Matthew Adams Service, approached DC Comics editor Jack Schiff to create a sci-fi strip that would capitalize on this new space race. At Schiff's urging, Kirby and Wood first created Space Busters, which I don't know what that was, whatever it was, it yeah. was rejected. Schiff then either collaborated on the creation of a new strip or simply encouraged Kirby and Wood to produce a strip that dealt with rocket launchings, moonshots, and general storylines just a little ahead of current developments in the news. And so Sky Masters of the Space Force was born. Dave Wood promised Schiff a percentage for arranging the deal, which Kirby allegedly assumed was a one-time payment, but that Schiff understood to be ongoing. In spring 1958, now before the comic has even debuted, Kirby verbally agreed to pay Schiff an ongoing percentage, in large part to safeguard his lucrative relationship with DC Comics. But there was confusion over whether the percentage should come from gross or net income, and there was an expectation that Kirby would personally cover the production costs for the strip. Just sort of a weird expectation, but okay. Yeah. Uh, this strained the relationship between Kirby and Schiff, as you might imagine. He also butted heads with the writer Dave Wood. He, he wanted a higher percentage of the royalties, ostensibly to cover the costs that he was being asked to cover, the production costs. Uh, for example, he was, you know, Wally Wood for inking. When Kirby yeah. threatened to leave the strip, Schiff implied Kirby should just ink himself and noted that Wood required money to pay his brother Dick, who was helping with the writing. That's why they, they didn't want to cut from the writer Woods money because he had he was writing it was two people writing the, the uh, strip on April 15th 1958 uh, again the strip has not even debuted uh, <laughs> Schiff drew up a formal agreement documenting the royalty cuts between Kirby and Wood and also Schiff himself who got four percent by July Schiff requested a higher percentage before the strip debuted oh, in yeah. September because uh, it was going to be in over 300 newspapers. That's something I don't think they expected to get that wide a uh, circulation. That's so, pretty big. With the arrival of the first royalty checks, the Wood Brothers sent money to Schiff, but Kirby refused, leading to more tension between himself and DC Comics. Kirby offered to buy Schiff out of his contract, but Schiff refused and fired Kirby from Challengers of the Unknown. <laughs> he claimed that Kirby was reusing ideas fr from Challengers for Skymasters, uh, who knows if that's really true, but I have a feeling, you know, you, you draw one adventurer comic, you're pretty much going to run into the same themes over and over. Um, sure. Now, on December 11th, 1958, Kirby discovered that Schiff was suing both he and the Woods for breach of contract, and, count and he countersued Schiff. Kirby claimed that Schiff was merely an editor who had assigned him the Wood Brothers and Eddie Heron freelance work. I'm not sure who Eddie Heron is, but okay. Not sure. Uh, that Kirby and Woods had visited Elmark without Schiff and that Schiff was not involved in the agency agreement, but that he and the Woods offered Schiff a gift. Kirby further alleged that Schiff had implied that not paying his demands would lead to Kirby losing work at DC. Uh, this was the major point of contention that I think would have implied that Schiff was sort of uh, blackmailing Kirby. 
this was the thing they couldn't prove. Um, yeah. And it pretty much screwed uh, Kirby in this case. Uh, Jack Leibowitz, who was the executive vice president and the general manager of National D.C., testified on Schiff's behalf, and they signed an agreement promising Schiff an ongoing percentage that led to Schiff being successful after a very short trial at the Supreme Court in White Plains, New York. Kirby left D.C. after this, but continued to, continued to draw Skymasters until 1961. Uh, Kirby, also, Kirby also bristled that some of DC editors had criticized him over his art details, such as not drawing the shoelaces on, cap, on a cavalryman's cavalry boots and showing a Native American mourning his horse from the wrong side, or mounting his horse from the wrong side, sorry. Uh, he also sued after this, I think probably in an act of uh, spite. He sued DC for $130,000 in back royalties or some kind of money he felt he was owed for his time at DC, and they ended up paying him ten grand. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Yeah, better than nothing, right? And and at this point, it's like we've been going on a long time here, and um, Fantastic Four number one hasn't happened yet. Mm -mm. I, I mean, <laughs> already he's had an illustrious career, uh, full he's of he's had a Hall of Fame career. Yeah, and so much, so much, it's so much success. It's unbelievable, and we haven't even gotten to the thing that he's known for. I right know. Absolutely. Now, uh, beginning in 1959, Kirby would return to Atlas slash Marvel, despite having some lingering resentment over Stan Lee. Uh, because of the poor page rates, Kirby would spend 12 to 14 hours daily in the dungeon at his drawing table, producing four or five pages of artwork a day. Wow. Just, just, Crazy. Just for comparison, in today's comics, and, and, and granted, <laughs> granted, today's comics, they are a lot more line heavy, for better sure. or for worse, but... An artist is expected to produce one penciled page one a page day. One page a day. Yeah, uh, just penciled. He's cranking four or five, so that's something. Crazy. Uh, now, his his first published work at Atlas was the cover of the uh, a cover and a seven page story called "I Discovered the Secret of the Flying Sources," that appeared in Strange Worlds number one, cover date December nineteen fifty eight. Uh, during this time, Kirby would draw a little of everything, just like we know. Uh, he's been he's <laughs> he is very very uh, wide uh, wide range of artistic talent here. Oh, yeah. um, he uh, created a Groot, the thing from Planet X, uh, in Tales of Astonish number thirteen, November nineteen sixty. I think a lot of folks don't realize that Groot is a character that predates you know the, oh, the yeah. Marvel age. Absolutely, Guardians and all that stuff. Yeah, he came Absolutely. first. And uh, also Fin Fang Foom from uh, Strange, Strange Tales number 89, uh, October 1961, uh, among many other weird monsters and characters. It was just kind of what was in the air at the time. Mm -hmm. um, he was a major and popular contributor to Amazing Adventures, Strange Tales, Tales to Astonish, Tales of Suspense, and World of Fantasy. Uh, legend states that Harry Donenfeld, while, go while golfing with Martin Goodman, uh, crowed about the success of his superhero team-up title, the Justice League of America. And Goodman decided, huh, maybe I want in on this game. Yeah, this, this is a piece of lore, though, that's never been really confirmed, yeah. but it's so good that everyone repeats it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, too, it's, it's too tasty a, a bite. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so it was tasked to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby to come up with something, and what they came up with was Fantastic Four. Uh, the Fantastic Four number one, uh, cover date November 1960, and uh, this would change the course of comics. Uh, they'd never be the same again. Uh, now, several things came into confluence at this time, but possibly the single most contributing factor was the mass generation of baby baby boomers coming of age at the same time. Yeah, I mean, so these are kids that would have literally just been turning 13 
you know, mm-hmm. somewhere between 11 to 13. This is the what we consider now the prime comics era. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, well, I guess we'll go more into this when we talk about Marvel, but this becomes a shift in the thinking of when kids put away comics. It used to be you, you weren't expected to read comics after age 10. Out of grade school, yeah. yeah. Pretty much 10, 11, you were done. Here we are, you know, a, a new ge- a generation of a lot of people at once are coming of age at the same time. And whether by design or by luck or coincidence, whatever it is. <laughs> Both, yep. <laughs> yeah, every, I think maybe every, everything all together, they're able to strike and they're able to hit this audience at this that perfect time with this, like, slightly smarter comic book than what had been seen before on the stands. Absolutely. Uh, now, they likened uh, Kirby's unorthodox panel-popping layouts, the real-life concerns of the characters, and Stan Lee's swinging lingo in the dialogue. Oh, it yeah. wasn't, uh, this wasn't your daddy's comic book. It, it, maybe it is now, but it wasn't that. <laughs> it, might, it might be your granddaddy's comic book now. It, come it to probably it. is. <laughs> now, this would, uh, this would kick off the, what we call the Marvel Age of Comics, uh, where artists would be asked to do the artwork and breakdowns in Kirby's style, uh, and this would become uh, you know, the Marvel... Look. Look. Yeah. Yes. Whoops. And uh, they also had the, uh, you know, the, the, the Marvel method, which, uh, you know, all the art was done and then the scripting was done after that. Yeah, it was an art first keep method. Keep it all coming. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it, was... it really, it, Kirby was the thrust of this. Uh, this is not to denigrate Stan Lee, Gil King, no, certainly John not. Romita. All these people played huge parts of it, but, but without Kirby, I don't think any of this would have happened. It's, he was the straw that stirred the drink for this whole operation. Almost certainly, yes. Uh, now, Gil Kane would explain, uh, Jack was the single most influential figure in the turnaround in Marvel's fortunes from the time he rejoined the company. It wasn't merely that Jack conceived most of the characters that are being done, but Jack's point of view and philosophy of drawing became the governing philosophy of the entire publishing company and beyond, uh, beyond the publishing company of the entire field. Marvel took Jack and used him as a primer. They would get artists, and they taught them. He, they taught them the ABCs, which amounted to learning Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby was like the holy scripture, and they they simply had to follow him without uh, deviation. That's what was told to me. It was how they taught everyone to reconcile all those opposing attitudes to one single master point of view. So basically, backing up everything we just said, Jack was yeah. Jack was the gospel. Absolutely. Now, uh, Lee and Kirby would co-create the Hulk, Thor, Iron Man, the X-Men, Doctor Doom, Uatu the Watcher, Magneto, Ego the Living Planet, the Inhumans, and their hidden city of Adelin, or Atalon. Uh, I, I don't watch any of the shows, so I don't know. Neither how to do I, it. no. But I always, I always said Adelin, but you know that does sound like another New York pronunciation. Yeah, I meet, you, I meet you down at Adelin, you know. Adelin, on the on the corner, on the corner, Ego and Magneto. Uh, <laughs> Uh, then also the Black Panther and his African nation of Wakanda. So that's all. Really. Uh, sure, yeah. uh, you know nothing, nothing really, <laughs> nothing that's uh, nothing that's making billions of dollars today. Right. <laughs> now Kirby drew the first Spider-Man story intended for publication in Amazing Fantasy 15, but Stan Lee chose to have Steve Ditko redraw the story. And I think there's pictures of of a. Uh, Kirby's uh, version of Spider-Man. Yeah, right? there, there are online. out there. It's it's wildly different. Uh, it yeah, actually, it actually looks closer to Joe Simon's The Fly that we talked about earlier. Absolutely. Uh, but you know, absolutely. but the nuts and bolts were all there that he was supposed to be a teenager and uh, you know he was supposed to have web shooters. I believe was that was always in there. I don't know. I don't know what. But he had like really a pistol. Ended. He had a sidearm. That's right. He that. shot. That's what it was. He <laughs> shot his webs out of a pistol. That was the thing. But it was never. It was never a genetic thing. It was always like a. Uh, soup he had to concoct to shoot his yeah. lips. 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, Lee and Kirby uh, gathered several of their newly created characters together into the title that some may have heard of called The Avengers. Uh, they would also revive characters from the 40s, such as the Submariner, Captain America, and Kazar. Uh, Marvel went from fourth in the line of publishers to first <laughs> by 1968. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Kirby became increasingly dissatisfied with Marvel, part, partly because of Stan Lee's public face and self-promotion. Um, I think a lot of people know Stan Lee. <laughs> I think you know what we're talking about. He's sort of a, a you know, circus-promoting kind of fellow, but that's, you know, that's who he is. Kind of a huckster, yeah, a little bit. Um, now, in 1970, Marvel offered a contract to Kirby that included such unfavorable terms as, as prohibition against legal retaliation. Um, now, when Kirby objected, the management refused to negotiate any contract changes. So he was basically asked to turn off any kind of right of, uh, of I yeah. don't know, a recourse. Yeah. Um, it would basically be like that, what is that, the Thomas Act that says that people in unions can't strike? Yeah. And so they have no power to do to affect their own situation. It's like Absolutely. the most ridiculous thing. And I don't blame Kirby one bit. Like, no, no, like, I have to at least have the option. You know, like, like, I'm not saying I'm going to sue you, you know, every other day, although as we see, Kirby was not afraid of a lawsuit, but, no. uh, you know, if everything's cool, we'll be cool, but anyway. And you got to figure, I mean, what kind of a, what kind of a slap to the ego is this? The guy created everything. Yeah. You know, I, or, or played a big role in it. Absolutely. You know, you, I, as far as I'm concerned, he should have been given like a stake in the company for, for what he did for them in those eight years, you know, in eight years, That's, he turned them yeah. from something that was really just kind of dying on the vine and, you know. Martin Goodman didn't really give a crap about it to the driving force of, of this company, you know? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I think you should have gotten, you know, what, do we, what you would do in, in a law firm is you'd give him a partnership. Partnership. So yeah. uh, it's, I, I, I really do see Kirby's point in this. You know, it's funny because when reading the history of Kirby and Simon, it looks like a history of just constant contention. But I think it's just, <laughs> yes. I think it's a constant, it's, he's just fighting for what's right, you know what I mean? He, he's not, this isn't a guy you know, drawing four hours a day and asking, gimme, gimme, gimme. He's, he's yeah. you know, cranking out five pages a day, Yikes. creating, you know, new characters left and right every time you blink. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, he deserved, he deserved a little more respect than, than to be told, Donnie, you can't even sue us. Yeah. So, yeah, messed up. Now, now to show what, what, a, what a character this fella had, uh, despite making 35 grand a year at Marvel, which is no small sum in 1970, Kirby up and left to, DC, to go to DC Comics. Uh, now, just for comparison's sake, in 1970, the cost of a new home was $26,600. Median household income was $8,700 a yeah. year. So, so, I mean, he was, he was up there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and a gallon of, right there. Yeah. And a gallon of gasoline was 36 cents. Um now that last bit is just there to depress everyone listening right now. Yeah, including you Chris, I'm sure. I'm sure that you don't you haven't seen $36 at the pump in your lifetime and I know I haven't seen it in my <laughs> Uh, so Joe Simon, just to, uh, to wrap up what he was doing during this time, he came back to comics through the 1960s. Uh, Simon produced promotional comics for the advertising agency Burstein and Newman, becoming art director of Burstein, Phillips and Newman from 1964 to 67. At the same time, from 1960, he founded the satirical magazine Sick, which was a ripoff of Mad Magazine, and edited and produced material for it for over a decade. There were a few of those out there, huh? Oh, there were a lot. There were a lot of... <laughs> and, and even, I mean, here it is. This one started in 1960. This is eight years after the fact. I mean, it just... Yep. Nonstop. It's, you know, crazy. Marvel had crazy... Uh, 
Cracked is another one of these. I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about these in our, uh, I think, in our underground, underground comics. Yep. But uh, th- that's might be worth a show of its own. The, the heirs, maybe, yeah. the heirs to Mad's humor fortune. Um, <laughs> in 1966, Kirby and Simon reteamed up to, f- to revive Fighting American for Harvey Comics. That was just one issue. And then Simon, as the owner, packager, and editor, helped launch Harvey's original superhero line with Unearthly Spectaculars 1 through 3, October 65 to March 67, and Double Dare Adventures 1 to 2, that was December 66 to March 67, the latter of which introduced the influential writer-artist Jim Steranko to comics. Hmm. In uh, 1968, and then later in 1969, I guess over a year, Joe Simon was involved in litigation with Marvel Comics over the ownership of Captain America, initiated by Marvel after Simon registered the copyright renewal for Captain America in his own name. It's kind of ballsy, huh? <laughs> I, I, I definitely. He was just like, let's see if they noticed this one. According to Simon, <laughs> Kirby agreed to support the company uh, in the litigation, and as part of a deal Kirby made with the publisher, Martin Goodman, signed over to Marvel any rights he might have had to the character. That's it's huge. Hard to say why that happened, but it also, it, it definitely makes... His decision to split, you know, after if he did that, and then they turn around, they want to do a contract where he can never sue them again. Yeah, it's just like what did I just do for you guys? You know what I mean? Like exactly. I, I, I just, I just, you know, and I showed up against you and against my friend, and you're gonna treat me like this. So and I just uh, handed you Captain America. I on gave you Captain America, which I, yeah. I think, I think, still makes them a couple of dollars today, even so. Uh, that was a good deal, yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1968, Simon created the one, the two-issue DC Comics series Brother Power the Geek, about mm. a mannequin come to life who wanders philosophically through 1960s hippie culture. And that's sort of a weird place to leave it. Uh, I just, I, I love the fact that Simon did a lot of these weird. They both did. Yeah. Go, going into the 70s, they got very strange. Uh, and we'll, we are going to talk about that, but we're going to take a little break right here. Um, I have a snippet. I have in mind to play. We'll see if I can find it. If not, you will uh, definitely hear something swell, entertaining, and relevant, and we will come back at you and wrap up our history of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Well, let's uh, turn then to the environment, which may be equally as important, the environment out of which Spider-Man was created. And, of course, you were involved in the historic partnership with Stan Lee at at Marvel. And uh, so... Uh, what was the working environment like there? How was it different from uh, the other companies? Uh, what was the Mary Marvel Marching Society like? Well, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't, well, I didn't consider it Mary. I considered it very, uh, uh, well, in those days, it was a, it was a professional type thing. Uh, uh, you turned in your, your ideas and, uh, and uh, you, uh, you got your wages and, uh, and you took them home. It, it, it was a very, very simple affair. Uh, I, it's nothing that could be dramatized or glorified or uh, glamorized in any way. Uh, it was a very, very simple affair. Uh, I, uh, I, I created the situation, uh, uh, and uh, I panelized them. I did them panel by panel, and I did everything but uh, put the words in the balloons. But all of it was mine except the words and the balloons. 
But uh, Jack, what about these legendary story conferences of of you and Stan or Stan and whomever acting the stories out in the office, jumping up on the desks and so forth, making things considerably more lively than when it was just an office consisting of Stan and fabulous Flo Steinberg uh, having people stick their faces in the door from magazine management going, hurry up, little elves, Santa will be coming soon. Uh, I'd have to disagree with that. Uh, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, it may have been like that after I shut the door and went home. <laughs> well, listen, we're going to open a door, a very special surprise door, Jack. And uh, let me mention, this is Earthwatch on WBAI in New York. I'm Robert Knight, here with Warren Reese, also with Max Schmid in the studio. We're speaking with Jack Kirby live. And now we can announce the very special surprise guest that we have for tonight's program, your uh, colleague or uh, in arms, Stan Lee. Good morning, Stan. Are you? Hey, how you doing? Okay. And I just uh, I want to wish Jack a happy birthday. This is a hell of a coincidence. I'm in New York and I was tuning in the radio and there I hear him talking about Marvel and I figured, well, I might as well call and not <laughs> let this occasion go by without saying many happy returns, Jack. Well, Stanley, I want to thank you for calling and uh, uh, I hope you're in good health and uh, I hope you stay in good health. I'm doing my best and the same to you. You know, you were talking earlier about um, your drawing and people sometimes criticized your figures and so forth. I, uh, I always felt that the most important thing about your drawings, I remember when I was a kid and I first saw Captain America, it wasn't the correctness of the anatomy, but it was the emotion that you put in. To me, nobody could convey emotion and drama the way you could. I didn't care if the drawing was all out of whack because that wasn't important. You got your point across and nobody could ever draw a hero like you could. And I just want to say without getting too saccharine that one of the marks I think of a really true great artist is he has his own style. And you certainly had and still have your own style, and it's a style that nobody has even been able to come close to. And I think that's something you can be very proud of, and, uh, and I'm proud of you for it. I have to thank you for uh, helping me to keep that style, Stanley, and uh, uh, helping me to uh, evolve all that. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm certain that uh, whatever we did together, we, uh, we got sales for Marvel. And I, I think it was more than that, Jack. We certainly got the sales, but whatever we did together, and no matter who did what, and I guess that's something that'll be argued forever, but I think that the product that was produced was really even more than a sum of its parts. I think there was some slight magic that came into effect when we worked together, and um, I, I am re very happy that we've had that experience. Well, uh, I was never sorry for it, Stanley. Uh, it, it was a great experience for me. And uh, certainly, uh, if the product was good, that was my satisfaction. And uh, I've, I've always felt like that. And uh, I, I think uh, it's the feeling of every good professional. And uh, uh, it, it's one of the reasons I respect you is the fact that you know, you're certainly a, a good professional, and uh, uh, and you're certainly fond of a good product. And I feel that's the that's the mark of all of us. 
You notice I never interrupt you when you're saying something nice about me. <laughs> All right, welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the uh, little break. I'm sh I know that Chris and I definitely enjoyed it and needed it and mm -hmm. needed to uh, rehydrate and dehydrate and do all those great things you do as you podcast. <laughs> so we're going to get back to uh, Kirby and Simon and, uh, you know, wrap up their careers, which let me tell you, it's not going to be, it's not, it's not dull from here on out either. Mm -hmm. um, now, as we said, due to feeling mistreated and experiencing a lot of growing friction with Stan Lee, Kirby left for DC Comics in 1970. Uh, these Kirby is coming ads started popping up in DC Comics uh, in the in the house ads and on the covers to hype the event. It really showed how big a deal this was. This was really comics, awesome, yeah. comics' first superstar, you know what I mean? And the, and the fact that he was going to, you know, a guy that had invented Marvel Comics as we know it was now going to go to DC Comics. They figured lightning was going to strike twice. And there was a lot of precedent for it since everywhere they went they were you know turning you know out new genres yeah, tastemakers yeah and cranking out a million you know selling a million copies a, a clip um uh, we recently and we still see this today we recently had something similar although it was on a smaller level when john ramita jr came from marvel to dc to draw superman and now he's doing all-star batman uh did a bunch of variant covers this was Supposedly something on the same magnitude. In my mind, it wasn't, but anyway, no. <laughs> I wasn't there for the first one. A bit so, of a smaller scale, yeah. I would say so. Um, <laughs> while he was at DC, Kirby created the Fourth World Commandy and worked on Jimmy Olsen. He actually took uh, the title Superman's Pal Jimmy Olsen initially because he didn't want to bump any established artists that were working on a title at the time. I think it was uh, slated for cancellation, or it actually had like a rotating kind of whoever they could grab to get on it at the time. And Kirby said he'd pick it up and. Yes, weren't they gonna weren't they gonna sweep it into Superman family or something? I know they eventually which did. they eventually did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that probably was on the horizon. But th sure. this title and Lois Lane, as as we learned when we did yeah. Cosmic Treadmill, it was sort of going through rotating people. I think whoever whoever needed work and they couldn't, you know, they here's here's Lois Lane. Have fun. Uh, <laughs> and Kirby made it crazy. Let me tell you, he changed the nature of that of uh, Jimmy Olsen. Tremendously, Real quick. Yep. <laughs> to the point where it even featured uh, Don Rickles at one point. But that's yep. maybe we'll do a Jimmy Olsen comic one day. Um, <laughs> Jack reconnected with Joe Simon on a revitalized Sandman. More on this in a moment. Uh, he'd also draw Superman and add to the mythos, but famously, DC swapped out Kirby's Superman faces with the ones drawn by Kurt Swan. And those original Superman faces are still around in the world. You can see them online, and you can actually see definitely why they really felt they had to swap them out it's uh yeah. it's kirby's usually sort of bloated looking wide-eyed faces was not really going to work in this case uh kirby also lampooned his old employer marvel in the pages of mr miracle which featured the funky flashman and house roy thinly veiled caricatures of stanley and roy thomas who was his protege who kind of took over for him at marvel a funky flashman was a blustery huckster who spoke with a true believer lilt while House Roy was very much the Flashman's adoring lackey, Brian Cronin from Meta Messages at Comics Should Be Good says Kirby depicts Marvel as a former slave plantation. Lee is depicted as a money-hungry man living off the whims of Marvel publisher Martin Goodman and whose be best skills appear to be using other people while distracting people into thinking he's adding something important of value. Ouch. Yikes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's pretty funny, these, uh, these panels, if you... If you these can also be seen online, if not in the yeah. actual issues of Mr. Miracle. Uh, Roy Thomas claims not to have taken offense to his inclusion as Lee's bootlick bootlicker, as he never really had heat with Kirby. In fact, they didn't even know each other that well. He figured it was just Kirby being mad at Marvel, and seeing as though Roy was the heir apparent, he was collateral damage, which is probably true. 
Yeah. Uh, Simon and artist Jerry Gradinetti created DC's four issue Prez September 1973 to March 1974. That was about America's first teenage president, and we did read Prez number one for Cosmic Treadmill a few months ago. Also in 1974, Simon edited a revitalized Young Love and Young Romance comics, as well as a reprint series for Black Magic. Simon and Kirby teamed up just one last time later that year. Uh, with Simon writing the first issue in winter 1974 of a six-issue new incarnation of the Sandman. This Sandman was originally intended to be the actual Sandman of popular myth, the guy that sprinkled sand in your eyes to uh, help you go to sleep, uh, the eternal and immortal version of Sandman. Despite his superhero-like appearance and adventures, he kind of actually looked like the Sandman that, that Joe and Jack had revamped in the 40s, except the colors yeah. had changed. Kind of a cowl... Uh, with a with a uh, an orange cowl and cape and a and a yellow suit with a hourglass in the front. It was really kind of old school, even for sure. uh, the nineteen uh, seventies. Um, uh, he's assisted by two living nightmares named Brute and Glob, whom he releases from dome cells with the help of a magic whistle. Using security monitoring devices, he literally sits in front of a bank of televisions. The Sandman can enter the dream stream or the reality stream. In the reality stream, he acts like the superhero that he looks like, uh, and he carries a pouch of dream dust, which he can cause anyone to sleep and dream. The Sandman's main task is protecting children from nightmare monsters within their dreams, especially one young boy named Jed, who lives with his grandfather, Ezra Paulson, uh, as, well as, to, as well as to ensure that children have an appropriate level of nightmares rather than dealing with such anxieties in real life. So it's pretty nuanced, weird stuff. Uh, you know, these guys got yeah. really, really weird in the in the Bronze Age. Uh, later, this guy turns out to be a doctor named Garrett Sanford in a story actually penned by uh, Roy Thomas, Wonder Woman 300 from 1983. Uh, he's trapped in the dream dimension. And then even later, he turns out to be Hector Hall in an issue of Infinity Inc., it gets it gets crazy later on. Uh, yeah, because he's the son of the Haw- he's son of Hawkman. Yeah, and he even turns up later on in the uh, Neil Gaiman run on Sandman. That's that's who that, that's very strange. Who, that's who he like. Yeah, he, he ends up being like the son of right Hector Hall and his wife. And his a... yeah, and then his son becomes the predecessor or the uh, the successor to Morpheus. To dream that yeah. Daniel. Yeah. yeah, the white the white dream or whatever. So. Uh, it gets a lot crazier. That's all. Uh, but even if you started in these seventies books, it's it's it's, it's unusual. Still weird. <laughs> uh, Simon and Grandinetti uh, also then created the Green Team Boy Millionaires in the DC Tryout series first issue special number two. <laughs> like that numbering, uh, yes. May May nineteen seventy five, and the Freakish Outsiders in first issue special number ten, January nineteen seventy six. I love those first issue specials. I know. It's like, <laughs> I've got a couple of them up on the site. That, that Outsiders one is one of them. It's it's pretty weird stuff. Oh, really? I, I'd love to check it out. Yeah, it's very, very strange. I thought it was the you know Batman and the Outsiders predecessor. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> it wasn't. Um, now, we're going we're gonna to take Kirby back to Marvel. Uh, at the comic book convention MarvelCon 75 that happened in spring of 1975, Stanley used a Fantastic Four panel discussion to announce Kirby was returning to Marvel. Uh, Lee wrote in his monthly column, Stan's Soapbox, that I mentioned that I had a special announcement to make. As I started telling about Jack's return to a, a totally incredulous audience, everyone's head uh, started to snap around as Kirby himself came waltzing down the aisle to join us on the rostrum. Uh, as you can imagine, 
I would feel clowning around with the co-creator of most of Marvel's greatest strips once more. That's a pretty big deal. Sure. Now, back at Marvel, Kirby uh, both wrote and drew the monthly Captain America series, as well as Captain America's Bicentennial Battles uh, one-shot in the oversized Treasury format. Uh, he created the series The Eternals, which featured a race of inscrutable alien giants, the Celestials. Always bored me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, God. Um, he produced an adaptation and expansion of the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. He wrote and drew Black Panther and drew numerous covers across the line. Uh, Kirby's other Marvel creations in this period include Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur. So uh, maybe not quite as uh, notable as you know, I mean. I, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to editorialize too much here, but I think by this point Kirby was a little burnt out on the creativity. A little sour. And, yeah. and you know, he'd only been doing it for you know almost forty straight years, so it's you can't really fault the guy too much. But yeah, he's starting to sort of retread familiar ground, and you know, this happens with people over time. Sure, and uh, Kirby's final comics collaboration with Stan Lee is The Silver Surfer, The Ultimate Cosmic Experience, and this was published in 1978 as part of the Marvel Fireside book series, and is considered to be Marvel's first official graphic novel. And it's fully painted also, something that should be mentioned, is that Kirby, yes. Kirby painted this one, so it's interesting. Now, still dissatisfied with Marvel, <laughs> Kirby took an offer from the animators Hanna-Barbera in 1979. Uh, he designed several characters, including the villains for Thundar the Barbarian, which is a favorite of yours. That's right. I love it. <laughs> in the uh, early 80s, uh, Pacific Comics made a groundbreaking deal with uh, Kirby to publish a creator-owned series called Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers and a six-issue miniseries Silver Star. Now, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about a character called Destroyer Duck. Yeah. Now, this, still, uh, still, in a, still in a similar wheelhouse to the self-publishing, though. You know, this is all sort of, absolutely. this is all part of the black and white comics revolution, too, that we talked about in Underground Comics Part 4, I believe. I think so. Or 3. Now, this, uh, one of them. Yeah. <laughs> now, this was published in 1982 by Eclipse Comics as a way for uh, comics creator Steve Gerber to raise funds for his lawsuit against Marvel Comics over ownership of the character Howard the Duck. Uh, Gerber had created the character in 1973, uh, first appeared in Aventure, Adventure into Fear number 19, December of 73. Jack Kirby provided pencils for the first five issues, having faced similar creator's rights issues as Gerber. Uh, Mark, are we saying Avenier? Uh, that's what I say. Mark Avenier and Steve Garba put together a pitch fit for a king. Uh, he penciled the 20-page special lawsuit edition for free. Wow. Uh, yeah, Gerber said, would you draw it for free? And then Kirby, without missing a beat, says, sure, it sounds like fun. Imagine that. Imagine Whoa. pitching yeah, <laughs> to, like, sure, the most you know. legendary artist on, in comics. And you're, and you're making him draw a duck for, for, you know what I mean? Like, oh, God, I wish I had something <laughs> better for you, but all right. There you go. <laughs> now, uh, Destroy a Duck is Duke Duck, who has a buddy called Leonard the Duck, who bears a striking resemblance to a certain other waterfowl. Mm, yeah. uh, Leonard is being held captive by the villainous God Corp that, you know, we know as Marvel Comics. This is a uh, surreal meta-story weaving narrative and satirical lectures over comic creators' plight in the face of the work-for-hire comics industry. Uh, of particular interest, uh, Steve Gerber was kind of, sort of, kind of technically able to steal Howard the Duck back from Marvel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this yeah. would happen in the, uh, the mid-90s. 
there was a there was an issue of Spider-Man Team Up. It was issue number five, December 1996. This is the first time that Steve Gerber would write Howard since the 70s. Uh, now, he would write it with the understanding that he'd be including two independent comics characters. And this would be uh, Eric Larson's Savage Dragon that appeared in Image Comics and Destroyer Duck. Uh, during a battle in a warehouse, they pulled the old switcheroo and the real Howard left the Marvel Universe. Whoa. <laughs> he uh, dyed his feathers green and changed his name to Leonard the Duck and would actually go on to appear in Gerber's uh, DC Comics Vertigo miniseries Nevada. Wow. Pretty strange, huh? Yeah, that duck gets around, boy. He does. Now, these independent works by Kirby, along with Neil Adams' efforts to get Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster some rights to Superman, ended the old work-for-hire system somewhat. Yeah, it still existed, but the 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 rules had changed, and there, there were some... Uh... You know, there were some rights. There were some rights given for for new creator for new characters, especially. That and the, I, some of them, most of them, are still in place today. I think I, they don't tell us anything, mm. folks. But uh, things did change. Were to the point where guys like John Byrne and uh, a lot of people live off their Rob Liefeld gets residuals every time that sure. their character is used in the uh, comics. Hit a certain sales mark. Now, um, after this, Kirby continued to do periodic work for DC Comics during the 1980s, including a brief revival of this Fourth World saga in the 1984 and 1985 Superpowers miniseries and the 1985 graphic novel The Hundred Hunger Dogs. In 1987, under pressure from comics cre- creators and the fan community, Marvel finally returned approximately 1,900 or 2,100 pages of the estimated 10,000 to 13,000. Kirby drew for the company. So that's all. Not that many. Not a lot, folks. But you know, I guess it's, again, better than poking the eye with a sharp stick. I guess uh, Kirby retained ownership of characters used by the Tops Comics beginning in 1993 for a set of series in, that the company dubbed the Kirbyverse. These titles were derived mainly from designs and concepts that Kirby had kept in his files. Some intended initially for the by then defunct Pacific Comics, and then licensed the Tops for what would become. Jack Kirby's Secret City Saga Mythos. Uh, I have about 15 copies of that first issue that came to me in a box. Really? Uh, yeah, I bought a uh, I bought a box of mixed comics at a at a at a shop. It was like a blind box kind of, and almost the entire thing was full of that book. Oh. Still in the uh, still in the poly bag. Interesting. Have you ever looked <laughs> yeah. at it? I have not. I'd, I'd be interested to see what it's like. You know, that's also the yeah. time they were doing Dinosaurs Attack and other kind of weird throwback comics. So it might be be- better than you think, but also it might be craziness. Um, <laughs> Phantom Force was the last comic book that Jack Kirby worked on. Story was co-written by Kirby with Michael Thibodeau and Richard French, based on an eight-page pitch for an unused Bruce Lee comic in 1958. Issues one and two were published by Image Comics, with various image artists inking over Kirby's pencils. Issue number zero and issues three to eight were published by Genesis West, with Kirby providing pencils for issues zero and four only. Thibodeau provided the art for the remaining issues of the series. And uh, eventually, Jack Kirby passed away February 6, 1994, at his home in Thousand Oaks, California, of a congestive heart failure. He was 76 years old. Mm-hmm. Now, let's uh, continue on to uh, Joe Simon, who actually outlived Kirby by uh, almost two decades, yeah, right? Yeah, quite a, quite a while, yeah. Quite a while here. In the, uh, in the 2000s, Kirby took, uh, I'm sorry, Simon turned to painting and marketing reproductions of his early comic book covers. 
Uh, he appeared in various news media in 2007 in response to Marvel Comics announced Death of Captain America. That happened in Captain America Volume 5, number 25. That was a uh, cover dated March 2007. He says, it's a hell of a time for him to go. We really need him now. Uh, well, don't worry. Now we have two of them. There we go. <laughs> At the very least. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, Simon's grandchildren attended the Los Angeles premiere of Captain America, the first Avenger, and they called uh, Simon from the red carpet when his name was announced as creator of the character. Um, Joe Simon died in New York City December 14th, 2011. He was 98 years old. Yeah. Uh, he passed after a brief illness. He had uh, two sons and three daughters. Um, Marvel posthumously published a lost Kirby Lee Fantastic Four story called uh, Fantastic Four The Lost Adventure that was cover dated April 2008. With unused pages, Kirby had originally drawn for a story that partially was partially published in Fantastic Four number 108, cover dated March 1971. Yeah, so that fairly well puts a conclusion on the lives of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, but the legacies... Mm -hmm. Uh, remain particularly with their most famous and probably almost definitely most, most lucrative most lucrative <laughs> character. I don't. Know, I didn't look at the spreadsheets, but it definitely got to be up there at least in uh, accumulated wealth. You know, over the time that he's been around, that's Captain America. And so the question is, who owns Captain America? You know, Joe Simon tried to sneak the copyright away in the late '60s, and uh, these guys were not, up, you know, averse to litigation with their publishers if they felt they were not getting their due. In uh, 2003, Marvel settled a suit with Joe Simon over the ownership of Captain America. Simon said, I always felt we was robbed, as Joe Jacobs, the boxing promoter, used to say. Uh, Simon claimed that any royalties he'd received for the merchandising or licensing of Captain America went toward paying the legal costs from, this, from these cases. Now, uh, Jack Kirby's, uh, Kirby's heirs sought to terminate grants of copyrights to the characters that he had a hand in creation of under a clause of the 1976 Copyright Act, but Marvel contended that they continued to fully own those characters due to Kirby's work-for-hire status as a creator. Suit was filed September 16th, 2000, uh, so sorry, September 16th, 2009. Uh, you know, and, and this is something we're sort of dancing around the issue of work-for-hire and uh, the we'll way, there, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the way these things used to work. This is this is a a episode we've kind of talked about, and I think you even cracked open a little bit a while ago talking about yeah. creators' rights. Uh, it's a it's a massive thing, but essentially the way it used to be is that the paycheck you would get for the work uh, that you, you did sign the Marvel, back of it. Yeah, if you signed the back of it, that constituted an agreement that you weren't going to uh, ask for further payment. You know, there literally was a little contract on the back of every check, and that by endorsing mm -hmm. it, you were Agreeing not to, you know, ask for money, more money later on. Uh, that was the short of it, believe me. Yeah, that you um, didn't have ownership, basically. But, uh, you know, the, so so you think it would be an open and shut thing. I mean, this is a signature, that's it. Um, but th they, they were calling, you know, Kirby's heirs felt differently about it. And uh, they may be referring to Section 302 of this act, which discusses copyright of works made for, made for hire. So it's not a matter of publishing, but who has the copyright? Who can benefit mm -hmm. from that and in which and in which case if you have the copyright then obviously you do get some kind of spread out of its use or at least you can dictate its use uh you could technically tell marvel to go take a hike for example um, sure. 
Kirby Air sent out 45 notices seeking to terminate the assignment of copyrights in comics featuring the works like Incredible Hulk, The Avengers, and The Fantastic Four. Litigation concerned a total of 262 works created between 1958 and 1963. Just those years. That's a lot, yeah. of, a lot of things created there, Mr. Kirby. Uh, mm-hmm. Marvel fired, filed for declaratory relief on uh, January 8th, 2010, citing the work-for-hire thing, but Kirby's heirs counterclaimed. The Southern District Court of New York sided with Marvel, citing that any of the work in question that Kirby performed would have been qualified under the Copyright Act of 1909. Now, the Act of 1909 and of 1976 feature different definitions of work made for hire. In 1909, it says the interpretation and construction of this title, the word author shall include an employer in the case of works made for hire. Employer and works made for hire are not defined separately. Uh, So that's interesting little uh, gloss over, I guess. In 1965, Mm -hmm. the the Ninth Circuit chimes in to say, we believe that when one person engages another, whether as an employee or as an independent contractor, to produce a work of an artistic nature, that in the absence of an, an, an express contractual res- reservation of the copyright in the artist, the presumption arises that the mutual intent of the parties is that the title to the copyright shall be in the person whose work, at whose insistence and expense the work is done. Okay, so what they're saying is that the company retains... The yeah, copyright. They, they've got the financial stake in the in the in the property. Right. So yes, it's theirs. Yeah. They're la- they're 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 taking absorbing a lot of the risk, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, that they own it. That that's what and they're, they're facilitating saying. the work. Yeah. But in 1976, work for made, made for hire now defined as one a work prepared by an employee within the scope of his or her employment, or two a work specifically ordered or commissioned for use as a contribution to a collective work, as part of a motion picture or other audiovisual work as a translation, as a supplementary work, as a compilation, as an instructional text, as a test, as answer material for a test, or as an atlas, if the parties expressly agree in a written instrument signed by them that the work shall be considered a work made for hire. So now there is a a stipulation that the person doing the work has to, there has to be an agreement that the work is for hire. And and that is where it got sticky. I think, uh, is that, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't think Kirby ever said, yes, this work is all for hire. And yes, you have all the copyrights. It it puts the onus now on the company and not the other way around. Yeah. The, the, the company has to prove it instead of, instead of the creator. Yeah. Um, now, the court found uh, the evidence uh, that Kirby's works were made at Marvel's insistence overwhelming. They concluded Kirby did not create the artwork until Lee told him to. Now, the heirs argued that there was no written agreement between Marvel and Kirby. However, the courts concluded that there was undisputed, that it was undisputed that Marvel did control and supervise all work that it published between 1958 and 1963. Uh, something called the, expre- the expense prong. Uh, Marvel bore any and all financial risk of a comic book's failure, not Kirby. And Kirby was paid a flat sum, a page rate. Uh, in 1972, a Marvel Kirby contract included a clause that Kirby agreed that the works were made for hire. Uh, let's go ahead to September 26, 2014. Uh, Marvel Comics and the Jack Kirby estate announced a settlement only days before the copyright case was set to go before the United States Supreme Court. Uh, in a joint statement, Marvel and the Kirby stated, 
Marvel and the family of Jack Kirby have amicably resolved their legal disputes and are looking forward to advancing their shared goal of honoring Mr. Kirby's significant role in Marvel's history. Now, the common takeaway from this is that one of the parties feared the potential result of a Supreme Court ruling. I wonder which one that might be. Mm, yeah. uh, <laughs> popular opinion and perhaps common sense tells us that the Kirbys really had nothing to lose at this juncture. And uh, this may have been more of a case of uh, Marvel or Disney blinking first. Yeah. And, and also, uh, by this time, they had made a, a, a ton of money off of the movies. Certainly. So they kind of, I think they had the settlement to give at, for sure at that time. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Kirby confidant and friend Mark Evanier uh, stated that he believed that Jack and Ross Kirby would have been real happy with the settlement. He did not go into detail, likely because he couldn't legally. But I think one could assume that the Kirby's had their day. Yeah, and we don't know, obviously, what the settlement was or the, the full arrangements of it. But I do know that when you uh, see Captain America in movies or uh, anywhere, even in the comic now, it says created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Yep. So, uh, and you're seeing a lot of that these days, people getting their due credits. Um, so I think it's great. It's, 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 it's a good turn. Uh, I don't know about the finance behind it, and uh, I don't even want to get into thinking. No. <laughs> I mean, first you got to think about how much money has Captain America made for Marvel. That's like almost today. How much did they yeah, make in from, one day? From <laughs> yeah. well, you could do that. I mean, even now it'd be yeah. hard. But from 1940 until now, I think that's you know that that could be your lifetime of uh, accounting of of crunching yeah. numbers trying to suss that one out. It's a lot um, of Jack. A lot. A lot of stuff was was in there, but that. Pretty much puts a nice, happy ending, I think, on the uh, Jack Kirby, Joe Simon story. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these guys are well-venerated today, and, uh, you know, you, you really you can't do enough to go back and look at that old work and, and really see the origins of comics and how the language of comics was developed through these two people, uh, particularly, like we said, with Jack Kirby in the 60s, he really sort of... It was like an, an he reinvented the wheel. It was like a BC to an AD yeah. type of shift. Yeah, it was like something had had a sea change in comics, and they would never look the same again. And uh, overall, uh, I guess it's arguable: are they better? Are they worse? I don't know. <laughs> but if you know, or if you have any ideas, or if you have any comments for us, you want to just talk to us and tell us what you thought of this episode, uh, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. Chris and I also contribute every week to uh, the the. Guys that host this podcast, WeirdScienceDCComics.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. Nominates Comics. And every single day, you got to go check out Chris is on InfiniteEarth.Blogspot.com. He reviews a different DC comic every day, and uh, today went up an unusual one, didn't it? A uh... Very unusual. A, uh, for folks of uh, who have listened to the past couple shows, I covered an issue of Beautiful Stories for Ugly Children. It was yeah. a wonderful Christmas tale. That's right. It's uh, an old Piranha <laughs> Press thing. You can we, we did a couple episodes ago. We kind of smashed together our Piranha Press history with uh, Paradox Press. You can find that in the feed. Uh, and, you know, if you ever have trouble, you can always just harass me chris archives him lovely on his site we do it's not hard to find our podcast although it, nah. it could be easier i admit that but uh <laughs> i think that's all we got for him this week chris you got anything else for him no just uh just like we were saying here it's great that uh kirby's getting his due um i think i think in the mainstream a lot of people think that uh stan lee wrote andrew yeah, a lot of these stories. So it's nice to see that it's finally coming out that uh, that there was a, another uh, another pair of talented hands in the mix. Yeah, and people, it's it's so interesting how comics can swing back and the pendulum goes from artist to 
to writer. Uh, to writer, depending on the era, you know, and and you know, Stan Lee was a guy that he definitely self-promoted himself and sort of came up in a writer's era. Um, and but it, it is nice to see that that they're finally realizing that comics is a collaborative thing. It's we may enough. we may tackle more of that uh, later someday. The whole, you know, who did what. Uh, the Marvel, the Marvel <laughs> method. Uh, there's a lot to unravel there, folks. But uh, there it is. It, it, it's it's nice to see Jack Kirby getting his name up there when Captain America is on the screen, along with Joe Simon. Certainly. But uh, if that's all we got this week, then uh, I think I'm gonna sign off and tell you all to keep it weird and friendly. See you. Oh.